Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now let's dig in. During the closing arguments of the Alex Murdoch trial, the lead prosecutor, Creighton Waters referred to Murdoch as a family annihilator. It was the first time in the trial that the prosecutors had used that phrase. Wanting to know more about what it means, I did a little research. It turns out it was first used in the 1980s by a forensic psychiatrist named Hark Dietz. Today, experts tend to use the term familicide instead. Both terms refer to family mass blank, wherein one family member does in the other family members. Because multiple people are done in, it's considered a mass blank. According to Louis Schlesinger, a professor of forensic psychology at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, these crimes tend to fall into two categories. Dr. Schlesinger, I'm going to call him Dr. S, how's that, told Drusilla Morehouse this, and I quote, One is the despondent, familicidal offender. This is someone who's very depressed and who does his family in to save them from living in this horrible and cruel world. And he does this as sort of an act of mercy, and very often he does himself in or tries to, end quote. According to Dr. S., the second category is a paranoid familicide offender. This guy sees family in an ownership sense, as in he owns the family, and often the crime itself is triggered by jealousy. For example, you might have a husband who finds out that his wife cheated. His response is to do the entire family in as a form of punishment. And by the way, it's no coincidence that I keep saying he and his, because most of the people who commit familicide are male. In the Alex Murdoch case, he harmed two family members, his wife Margaret and his youngest son Paul. He spared his eldest son, Buster, and he initially spared himself. But a few months later, after the crime, he made an attempt to do himself in by asking his cousin Eddie to do that deed for him. He'd hoped to secure a $10 million life insurance payout for Buster. Alec maybe also hoped that if cousin Eddie successfully harmed him, then Margaret and Paul's deaths could be pinned on Cousin Eddie as well, thereby saving the Murdoch family name and reputation. Sneaky. Maybe Alec didn't see Buster as a financial problem as he did Paul, but now Alec Murdoch will spend the rest of his days in prison, barring any strange incident where his conviction could be overturned. And now Buster, who no longer has a mother, or a brother, or any sibling, will not get a cent of the $10 million 
either lose, lose, lose. According to Dr. S., family annihilators often say after the fact, I wanted to do myself in as well, but after the deed was done, I just didn't for some reason. Dr. S. explains it like this. That's because the emotion is released on the victims, and there's nothing left for himself, for the annihilator. Familicides often happen within a short period of time, and most often, the perpetrator commits the crime at the family home when everyone, meaning everyone in the family, is there. The John Emile List case is a good example of a family annihilator who is in a financial stranglehold and who thinks he owns his family, so much so that he takes their lives and their futures into his hands. Our bed crime story takes us to the year 1971. That's the same year the Walt Disney World theme park opened in Florida, the same year the Soviet Union launched the first space station into low Earth orbit, and the same year the New York Times began publishing sections of the Pentagon Papers, an unfiltered report on the United States' political and military involvement in the Vietnam War. 1971 was also when Charles Manson and three of his followers received the death penalty and when the Rolling Stones, the Jackson Five, and Marvin Gaye were rotating on the radio. 1971 finds the List family, including 46-year-old John List, his 84-year-old mother Alma, his 46-year-old wife Helen, and their three children, 16-year-old Patty, 15-year-old John Jr., and 13-year-old Fred, living in the affluent town of Westfield, New Jersey. Located 16 miles southwest of Manhattan, Westfield is one of those enviable enclaves of the good American life, with its tree-lined streets, lush manicured lawns, storied Victorian mansions, elite schools, friendly neighbors at the ready to help, kids scurrying from yard to yard, and a sense of security. Westfield is like a town out of a Norman Rockwell painting. The family lives at 431 Hillside Avenue in a stately 19-room mansion named Breeze Knoll. The mansion is set back from the road with a long driveway, white facade, black shutters, and a vast, verdant lawn, fine enough for a Kennedy. The home even has its own massive ballroom, the size of a basketball court. The patriarch, John, at first glance, looks like your average 70s suburban dad. Suit, tie, and thick black-rimmed reading glasses. But List is anything but. Appearances are everything to him. His goal is to be successful and to look successful. That's why he picked Westfield and why he moved his family into a mansion that he cannot fully afford. A look inside Breeze Knoll at the time 
reveals mostly unfurnished spaces. Liszt is, above all, a devout Lutheran who teaches Sunday school and who strictly follows all the rules. Tightly wound, rigid, never quick to laugh, and always obsessive-compulsive, John Liszt Sr., wears the same clothes to his job as an accountant at a nearby bank as he does to cut that lush lawn, black suit, and tie. Yep, he cuts the lawn in his suit, much to the shock and amusement of the neighbors. He also makes it a point not to socialize with others. When the Lists first moved into Breeze Knoll, one of their friendly neighbors and his son came to the door to welcome them with a freshly baked apple pie. John List answered and without any fluff told the pair that he and his family stick to themselves. It was a rare rebuff in a neighborhood that prides itself on friendliness and where neighbors go out of their way to be neighborly. From the very beginning, the Lists were different. The child who accompanied his father with the apple pie was upset because he loved playing in the mansion with the kids who lived there before. There are tons of fun hiding places in this grand abode. John's wife, Helen, is a stay-at-home mom to their three children, and unlike her cold, emotionless husband, Helen, at least when answering the door, exudes warmth and friendliness. She and John have been married for 20 years. They got hitched when Helen lied to him, telling him that she was pregnant. A quickie marriage followed. He soon found out she wasn't pregnant. But prior to getting married to John List, Helen was the wife of an army man who tragically died in the Korean War. But he left her with two things to ensure she never forgot him. A daughter named Brenda and a flaming case of syphilis. Perhaps out of embarrassment, Helen has never sought medical attention for the ravaging disease, and it's taking a toll. She's blind in her right eye and can barely walk. Finally, two years ago, she mustered the courage to tell her husband, John, and her doctor about it. John List now secretly views Helen as dirty and abhorrent. To get through the day, Helen self-medicates with tranquilizers, barbiturates, and scotch. She will later be diagnosed as a latent schizophrenic. Problems inside the List mansion abound. Perhaps out of frustration at dreams that would never be, perhaps out of anger at her OCD husband, Helen has a tendency to vent verbally on John. She's been heard telling him that he's not half the man her first husband was, the same husband who gave her that disease. She also presses John financially. She wants to live in a mansion and have fancy cars and clothes. It's a classic case of trying to keep up with the Joneses. John has had it drilled in him since he was a small lad that the measure of a man is his ability to support his family. He was also told that divorce is never an option. The Liss' 16-year-old daughter, Patty, 
a pretty girl with long brunette tresses parted in the middle in the popular style of the day, and gray-green eyes, is the most socially adept of the three kids. As a teenager, she's beginning to rebel a little. She's been skipping class now and then, and sneaking out at night to see her 20-year-old boyfriend. Her father fears she's straying from her Lutheran upbringing and may go in such a way that she won't make it to heaven. The list two sons, 15-year-old John Jr. and 13-year-old Frederick, are both good kids, albeit a tad nerdy. Both have ears that stick way out, just like their fathers. John Jr. enjoys playing soccer, and sometimes Fred and John Jr. hang out with the neighborhood boys. Late fall of 1971 finds John List secretly unraveling. Unbeknownst to Helen, the kids, and his mother Alma, he's just lost another job. This has been his pattern, getting good positions but then losing them after a year or so. It's not because he's unwilling to work hard, but rather because his colleagues don't like him. He's simply too rigid, too unfriendly, too unpleasant. With this most recent job loss, John can't bring himself to tell the family. So to keep them from discovering this dark secret, he drives to the train station each weekday morning and hangs out there reading the newspaper and books until it's time to head home. Another secret John's keeping is that the family is on the brink of bankruptcy and the mansion is about to be foreclosed on. As a last-ditch effort, he tries selling insurance, but he simply doesn't have the personality needed for that job. When things get to the boiling point, John tries to figure out a plan. He's unwilling to apply for welfare, and he doesn't want his kids to endure the shame of a bankruptcy and having to vacate Bree's Knoll. As a strict Lutheran, John tells himself that he cannot divorce his wife, whom he loathes at this point, and sees as a burden that he can't escape. He's also unwilling to abandon his kids. Finally, he hits on a solution, which brings him immediate peace. The accountant in him then methodically and systematically plans a way out of the whole mess. At one point, he orders a meeting where he asks each family member how they want to be treated after they die. Burial or cremation? Patty tells a friend of hers about this and asks if it's weird. The friend thinks, well, your dad's an accountant. He probably is just making sure everything's taken care of well in advance. D-Day. November 9th, 1971 begins like any other weekday in the List home. John gets up at 5.30 a.m., he makes eggs for breakfast and gets the kids up for school. Soon they're out the door and on their merry way. When the milkman delivers five quarts of milk, 
John, instead of handing over the $177 he owes him, hands him a note saying that he's canceling all deliveries until further notice. Bullet point one on the plan's to-do list, done. Helen then comes downstairs, grabs some toast and a cup of coffee, and sits down at the kitchen table. While she's enjoying her breakfast, John heads out to the garage and grabs two old firearms. He then takes a moment to review the plan in his head. He takes a deep breath, walks into the kitchen, moves up behind Helen, places one of the firearms straight up to the back of her head, and pulls the trigger. In what seems like slow motion, Helen List sinks to the floor. Next, John runs upstairs to the third floor, where his mother, Alma, is also getting her breakfast together. She greets him good morning, gives him a kiss, and asks what the loud noise was. He tells her he doesn't know. In a move that he will later say makes him feel like Judas, he takes the weapon out and aims straight at her face. His mother falls to the floor in her floral nightgown and slippers. John then heads back downstairs, places Helen on a sleeping bag, and drags her to the ballroom, where he leaves her on the floor near the massive marble fireplace. He pulls her dress up in an act to shame and humiliate her, and then places her arms over her head. Next, he gets out a bucket and a mop and proceeds to clean up the mess in the kitchen. He doesn't want his children to see anything amiss when they get home from school. After all the cleaning and evil doing, John's hungry, so he makes himself a sandwich, sits down at the same kitchen table where Helen had just been and he eats his sandwich, cold. No feelings of remorse, no tears, no panic, no emotion. He then drives his blue Chevy Impala to the bank. There he closes all his accounts and cashes out his mother's two remaining savings bonds. Next, he places a stop on the family's mail and cancels the newspaper subscription. So many bullet points on the to-do list now checked off. Shortly after noon, he reloads his weapons and gets ready for phase two, the children. Patty has signed herself out of school for the day, claiming she has cramps. She's over at Duke's sub shop around 12.30 p.m., and she's talking to her friends when her father walks in. He says it's time to go, and Patty follows his orders. He drives Patty home, and as they walk from the laundry room toward the kitchen, he takes out that object again, aims it at the left side of his daughter's face, and that's all it took. He then puts Patty on a sleeping bag, and drags her to the ballroom. He lays her in a vertical position to Helen's horizontal one, almost like a letter T. He cleans up once again in anticipation of Fred's arrival home. So much mopping. Two more family members to go. 
Fred is at his after-school job, the same place where Patty works. He calls home to ask why his sister didn't show up for work. Who knows what his father told him? When Fred arrives home, his father does the exact same thing to him that he just did to Patty, including putting Fred on a sleeping bag and dragging him to the ballroom. Next, it's John Jr.'s turn. List heads to John's soccer game and picks him up. When they get home, John Jr. only has time to put his books and his school bag down. He doesn't even get a chance to take his coat and his gloves off. His father attacks. Only John Jr. is bigger, stronger than his siblings, and he fights back. It takes his father ten shots to silence him. Once again, List grabs a sleeping bag and drags his third child to the ballroom. Oddly, he puts a towel over John's face and over that of Helen. Perhaps it's because they are lying face up, while Patty and Fred are face down. When he's later asked how he felt in that moment, John List replies, satiated. Then the devout Lutheran prays and asks God to take his family into heaven. He says they are innocent and this is not their fault. List then leaves a note with each body, explaining why he did each person in. He leaves his mother on the third floor, explaining in a note that she was too heavy to move. How thoughtful. List also leaves a note to his Lutheran pastor, Reverend Ray Winkle. In one of the notes, List writes, I'm sure some will ask, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My answer is that it wasn't easy. But his work is not yet done. List goes through the mansion and he carefully cuts his face out of every family photo. Finally, he eats dinner and enjoys that one last meal in Bree's Knoll, and he sleeps peacefully in the house as four bodies lay motionless in the ballroom, and his mother is crumpled on the floor of her upstairs apartment. The next day, John calls the kids' schools and informs them that his kids won't be in class for the next month because they're taking an extended vacation to North Carolina. List lies and says that their grandmother has fallen ill. He then turns all the lights in the mansion on, as well as the sound system. He turns the dial on the radio to a station that plays religious hymns. Finally, he lowers the thermostat to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. He then leaves the mansion, gets into his Chevy Impala, and drives to Kennedy Airport, where he abandons his car. Next, he disappears into the mist. The bodies are not discovered until December 7th, nearly a month after all the family members were done in. One of Patty's drama teachers, Mr. Ed Iliano, pays a visit to the mansion to check on his missing student. 
Some of the list neighbors are also concerned because they notice lights on the first floor were flickering at some point and then going out completely. They decide to call the police. When the cops entered the home, they find it cold, dark, with scary organ music playing over the intercom system, and there's a strange odor. They follow the creepy scent to the ballroom. It's pitch black inside, so they use their flashlights as they call out family members' names. The lights land on the marble fireplace, and then on the bodies. It's then that the full horror hits them. The bodies are still mostly intact due to the cold temperature, but it's a scene the cops will never forget. It's not until 18 years later when Union County prosecutors asked the producers of America's Most Wanted to look at the case that John List finally has a reckoning with the justice system. The producers agree and bring in a forensic sculptor named Frank Bender to make a bust of what John List would look like at this point in his life. Bender adds glasses to the bust. The episode airs on May 21st of 1989, and 22 million people watch it. One of them, a woman living in a suburb of Richmond, Virginia, thinks that the bust looks like her next-door neighbor, Robert Clark. She calls the police, and agents go to the Clark home and confront a stunned wife. She tells them that she met Robert Clark at a church social. Robert Clark, a.k.a. John List, is soon arrested at his office on June 1st. Fingerprints confirm that he is indeed John List. Clark's wife had no idea her husband had a former family and a former life. List ends up being convicted and is sentenced to five life terms in prison. He dies there on March 21st of 2008 at the age of 82. And mysteriously, nine months after the crime, Breeze Knoll burns to the ground. Accident or deliberate? You decide. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Now do me a favor, smash that like button, subscribe to my channel, leave me a comment, and consider a membership if you want to keep all the good quality content coming your way. See you next time.